Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of child possession and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Ruby wasn't going to let the winter storm outside ruin her evening routine. She microwaved a TV dinner, poured a glass of boxed wine, and settled into her armchair to watch a rerun of The Price is Right. When you're in your 70s, it's the simple pleasures that get you through a winter in Connecticut. But as the game show's theme song bubbled on television, the rain started to pelt the window next to her. She hoped it wouldn't wake her 12-year-old grandson, Billy. She had just put him to bed. Lately, he had trouble sleeping, and Ruby's daughter, Sarah, was worried about it. Sarah was always fussing over Billy's odd behavior and tantrums. Ruby thought she was coddling. If Sarah wasn't careful, Billy would become a spoiled monster. Ruby immediately felt bad at the thought. Billy was a sweet boy. But, she reasoned, there are monsters in all of us. It's just a question of what coaxes them out. Ruby heard something stir down the hall. Billy, she thought. The rain must have woken him up. She grunted as she hauled herself to her feet to go check on him. But when she stood up, she saw he was already in the room. Billy stood in the doorway, but there was something strange about him. His body was rooted in place, impossibly still. His chin was pressed against his chest, forcing his dark eyes to strain to look up at her. A chill rushed up Ruby's spine. She asked if he was okay, but he didn't answer. Instead, he revealed his hand. He was holding a knife. And the maniacal look in his eyes told Ruby he meant to use it. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week is the third episode of our special four-part series, highlighting cases investigated by famed paranormal researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren, the duo who inspired The Conjuring films. These episodes will explore the real haunted places behind the Warrens' most famous investigations and will focus on the history behind the specters they encountered. Today, we're taking you on a supernatural journey to suburban Connecticut to visit the Brookfield House the home that unleashed the area's notorious Brookfield demon. This New England horror story is the basis for The Conjuring's upcoming third installment, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Only with this haunted place, you can't walk out a door and leave the horrors within behind. Because if the Brookfield demon wants you, it follows you wherever you go. Coming up, A shy boy discovers his voice and finds it's a scream. The Brookfield house was two stories tall, 
painted the color of summer corn with olive green shutters. It was surrounded by trees along the old Hollyville Road in Brookfield, Connecticut. There's not much information about the home itself, including when it was built or who lived in it prior. But what is clear is that the New England house that birthed the Brookfield demon looked like a dream home. And to Debbie Glatzel and Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, that's exactly what it was. In 1980, Debbie and Arnie were newly engaged and poised to move into the quaint suburban home. To the couple, it wasn't just a house. It was the start of their lives together. But on moving day, Debbie's little brother David stumbled upon something so evil it would change the family forever. It would also bring Ed and Lorraine Warren into their lives. Ironically, the Glatzel family already knew of the Warrens. Ed and Lorraine lived nearby in Monroe, Connecticut, and were known statewide as paranormal experts. The Glatzels had even attended one of the Warrens' lectures. They just never thought they'd be calling on them for help. Billy sat with his arms crossed in the back seat, glaring at the back of his sister's head. All he could think about was that he'd rather be at home playing Mario Brothers. But instead, Monica had dragged him along on a house hunt with her and her fiancé. And she made him sit in the back seat, like a little kid. This was the 1980s, and newsflash, 12-year-olds didn't need babysitters anymore. Only his family hadn't gotten that memo. So... Here he was. Billy looked out the car window as they coasted down the driveway of the first home. Monica sighed dreamily as they approached. She turned around in the front seat to ask him if he liked it. Billy nodded yes, even though the colors looked like puke. Billy was always trying to please everyone around him. That meant ignoring what he wanted and going along with what was asked of him. It was why he was here today. But lately... It had been making him resentful. He shoved this resentment down, but he could always feel it, like a little twinge in his spine. A Mercedes pulled up beside them, and a realtor got out. She was a little less fancy than her car indicated. A coffee stain stuck out on her white button-down. Billy watched her hide it with her clipboard as she waved at Monica and her fiancé. Monica turned to Billy and told him they'd be right back. Then he watched them disappear inside the house. Now he was stuck in the car alone. This was going to be boring. He felt the twinge in his spine. He took a deep breath, reasoning that he didn't have to just sit and wait. He could explore. Billy got out of the car and walked around the side of the house. He perked up when he saw a stone well in the backyard. He hurried over and leaned on its wall to peer into its depths. But he couldn't see the bottom. When the sun hit, it was just inky blackness. Billy yelled into the well and listened to his voice bounce around, growing fainter until it disappeared completely. He did it again and again until repeating hello over and over got boring. He tapped his fingers on the stone wall and thought of something fun to say. Then he screamed that Monica could eat his shorts and listened with a small thrill as it echoed and bounced against the stone. It felt good to stop trying to please everyone, even if it was only in private. But then he heard something strange. 
A heavy breathing resonated from deep in the well. At first, Billy thought it was the last bit of his echo, but it didn't disappear like his voice had. It got bigger. He felt his arm blossom with goosebumps and his heart race. Something was down there. He stared into the well as the breathing grew louder and louder. Suddenly, Monica's voice ripped him from his trance. She was at the back door of the yellow house, waving at him to come see. It was perfect. Billy glanced at the well uneasily before hurrying to her. For the first time all day, he was actually happy to see her. Billy followed Monica down the hall, barely listening to her ramble. He couldn't stop thinking about the well. That itch in his spine flared again, and he realized his forehead was dripping with sweat. He hurried into a bathroom and shut the door. Monica knocked, asking what was wrong. He yelled that he just needed a minute. Billy turned on the faucet and splashed his face with cold water. For a moment, he felt normal again. But it didn't last long. When he glanced into the mirror, he saw an old man standing behind him. Billy screamed and whipped around to look behind him. Maybe it was just his imagination. But sure enough, there was an old man standing there, naked. The man's face dripped with water. He looked at Billy with wide eyes, and then his face stretched into a horrible smile. He told Billy he'd been waiting for a new place to live, and he'd heard Billy from a mile away. Billy was confused. What had the man heard? Before he could ask what he meant or who he was, the old man latched a clammy hand around Billy's throat. Billy flailed, trying and failing to loosen the man's grip. But the old man cried out that the feeling Billy kept inside, that itch, had called to him like a beacon. He'd help Billy make it so others could hear it too. Billy felt the itch in his back surge into a throbbing pain until his whole body felt like it was on fire. Finally, the old man released his grip and Billy dropped to the ground. When he looked up again, Billy gasped. The man had disappeared, but the twinge hadn't. It writhed in his spine, stronger than ever. After a moment, he heard Monica bang on the door. She must have been knocking for a while, but suddenly the sound grated on him. It made that itch pulse until he couldn't take it anymore. He screamed at her to shut up. Monica's knock stopped. The sensation inside Billy's spine dissipated, but guilt replaced it. He reached for the door and opened it, telling Monica he was sorry for what he said, but they should leave. His voice then fell to a whisper. He told her the house might be haunted. Monica glared at him and said it was a nice try. She knew his little tricks. Then she turned to the realtor. They'll take it. Billy was relieved when he finally got into bed that night. The day's events seemed like a distant dream, and it felt good to be back in his room. Monica could do whatever she wanted, but Billy knew he'd never go back to that house again. He laid back into his fluffy pillow and closed his eyes. Instead of the usual sounds of the house, crickets outside, people walking around, Billy heard breathing again. 
He ignored it at first and snuggled deeper into his covers. But the sound grew louder and closer. Billy slowly opened his eyes. A pale face hovered over him, lit by the warm glow of his nightlight. It belonged to the old man. The same man he'd seen in the bathroom. Billy couldn't scream. He was too frozen by fear. A cold, damp hand grabbed his arm. And the man's voice asked if Billy was going to welcome him home. Tears streamed from Billy's eyes as he realized that his sister's house wasn't haunted. He was... Twelve-year-old David Glatzel's family claims he was possessed after he encountered a demon in his sister's rental home. Accounts differ if this entity was seen first in an old well on the property or in the master bedroom where David initially described being pushed onto a waterbed by a mysterious man. But that evening, they realized the evil had followed David home to Brookfield, Connecticut. After the alleged encounter, the family recalled that objects seemed to levitate around David. He had trouble sleeping. He woke frequently, screaming that invisible hands were choking him, or that a man with black eyes and animal features was watching him. Worse still, David became violent. He attacked his grandmother with a knife and kicked and spat at his mother. During the altercations, family noted that David's face contorted and his laugh became a snarl they began to call this raging entity within him, the Beast. Luckily, there was help nearby. David and Debbie's mother, Judy, had previously attended one of Ed and Lorraine Warren's paranormal lectures. She knew the warning signs, so she called them. The Warrens arrived 12 days later. Not long after, Lorraine Warren witnessed a black, misty form looming beside David. That was all she needed to see. Lorraine knew the boy was inhabited by something evil. And if they were going to save him, they had to act quickly. Coming up, a priest realizes that sometimes prayer isn't enough. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. The more time the Warrens spent with 12-year-old David Glatzel, the more alarmed they became. The spirit that possessed him, they discovered, the one they called the Beast, was not just violent, but homicidal. The Beast spoke through David. It allegedly made references to murder, and specifically to stabbing. Lorraine worried the Glatzels were sitting on a powder keg, and that something truly horrible was going to happen. Desperate, the Warrens reached out to a pastor at nearby St. Joseph's Roman Catholic Church, who had helped them with an exorcism nine years before. They explained David's situation, and in response, not one, but a few priests were allegedly dispatched to the home to investigate. 
but nothing could prepare them for the horror that awaited them in David Glatzel's room. Father Ralph sat in his car, focused on his disc man. When he pressed play, it started to whirl inside, and suddenly, Aerosmith blared into his headphones. Aerosmith was Father Ralph's secret pleasure. He was a Catholic priest, and some of the lyrics were a little raunchy, but their guitar melody stirred a part of his soul that years at the seminary had stifled. He could even feel it physically, like a little burning in his chest. It was excitement, maybe mixed with a little guilt. And the feeling was addictive. Father Ralph loved it so much that he frequently volunteered to do the church's house calls because it gave him the chance to sit in his car and listen in privacy. So when the church rectory received a request this morning asking for someone to pray over a young boy, he jumped at the chance. After playing the air guitar for a few minutes, Father Ralph stopped the disc man, grabbed his Bible, and stepped out of his car. He straightened his clerical collar as he took in the home's ordinariness. It didn't stick out from the block, but a closer look revealed trouble. The house's paint was chipping, the lawn was overgrown, and the car in the drive was covered with leaves. Father Ralph had made hundreds of house calls in his career, and he knew that it was likely a sign of distress. As he rang the doorbell, he took a deep breath, trying to shift his mind from guitar solos to prayer. After a moment, he heard footsteps inside. The door cracked, and a bloodshot eye peered out at him. Father Ralph cleared his throat and said he'd come to pray over the afflicted. The door opened the rest of the way to reveal a very tired-looking woman in her 50s. She said her name was Sarah, and she was glad Father Ralph had come. Her son, Billy, needed him. She ushered the priest inside and closed the door. Sarah told him to take off his shoes and to be quiet. Sounds made him angry. Her tone made Father Ralph shiver. He asked her why Billy was so angry, and she said she wasn't talking about Billy. Father Ralph asked her to elaborate, but she said it would be better if he saw for himself. Sarah turned off the light in the hallway before they proceeded. Father Ralph felt his chest tighten as they traveled down the hall. Why would she turn the light off? It was backwards. But once again, Sarah said nothing. When they stopped at a door with a heavy steel padlock securing it, Father Ralph nearly gasped. This mother was keeping her son locked inside a room. He debated calling the police, but it seemed strange that she was so open about it all. He decided to reserve judgment until he met the boy. Father Ralph watched closely as Sarah unlocked the padlock and loosened its chains. He noticed her take a breath like she was stealing herself and pushed the door open. The room was typical of a 12-year-old. Rocket wallpaper, toys everywhere, a discarded Nintendo lay by a television. But the room's young occupant, Billy, wasn't playing with his toys or on his game console. Instead, he was thrashing violently on a bed at the far side of the room. His hands were tied to the bedpost, and his chest heaved. The sheets were soaked with sweat. Billy moaned, snapping Father Ralph from his incredulous stupor. 
He strode to him, eyeing the boy's chafed wrists and ankles. What had this woman done to her child? This was torture. He moved to untether Billy's limbs, but a hand grabbed his arm. It was Sarah. Do not untie him, she said. Not if Father Ralph wanted to stay safe. He ignored her. She was obviously unhinged, and he wasn't going to leave Billy in this house with her a second longer. He quickly unwound the binds from his wrists and ankles, as Sarah pleaded with him to stop. As the last of the binds were released, Father Ralph heard a violent growl. Billy was staring at him, but he no longer had the face of a boy. His eyes had turned coal black, and his long teeth were jagged. His ears had become sharp, like horns. Father Ralph realized that Sarah wasn't the unhinged one. Billy was. Father Ralph backed away, shaking so hard that he dropped his Bible. Billy hissed and lunged forward. Father Ralph felt the beast boy's cold, clammy hands wrap around his wrist. The boy spoke to him, not in the voice of a child, but an old man. He rasped at Father Ralph that he was waiting for him to come, that he'd been waiting for a long time. The demon's black eyes drilled into Father Ralph's, causing a burning sensation to surge through him. Just then, Sarah's arms wedged between them, shoving Billy onto the bed. She cried to Father Ralph for help. While she held the boy down, the priest fumbled with the ropes. When the boy was finally secured, Father Ralph raced for the bedroom door. His body vibrated with a fear he had never felt before. Every nerve seemed like it was on fire. He had just witnessed his first possession. But he knew demons don't just take anyone. They choose hosts who are susceptible. And he immediately wondered if he might be vulnerable. After all, he listened to rock and roll. Against the protests of the mother, he bolted for the front door and out to his car. Where was he going, she demanded. But he had seen enough. Inside the car, Father Ralph's hands shook as he pressed play on his discman. The sweet, soothing rock tones drifted into his ears, but it didn't relax him like it normally did. Maybe it was because he felt like Billy's cold hands were strangling him. Father Ralph yanked at his priest's collar to let a little air in but that didn't help. In fact, it seemed to make it worse. He was sweating so profusely, it felt like his face had sprung a leak. He decided to look in the mirror to see what was happening, but when he did, he saw something that sent his heart racing even faster. It wasn't his face. His skin was sheet white and his eyes inky black. He tried to gasp, but instead, a growl rolled from his chest. Brother Ralph suddenly realized that the demon wasn't in that godforsaken house. It was in the car with him. Around July 1980, four priests from St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Brookfield visited the Glatzel home. They gave 12-year-old David what Ed and Lorraine Warren termed several lesser exorcisms. The Warrens claimed these visits revealed that David was possessed by upwards of 42 demons and at least one devil. 
The priests were allegedly instructed not to speak to the public about the Glatzels. The church has tried their best to keep the matter under wraps. But that didn't put an end to the controversy. A spokesperson for the local Catholic diocese, Reverend Nicholas Grieco, reportedly stated that the Glatzels never requested a full exorcism because the church required psychological testing first. Judy Glatzel stated that she tried to fulfill the church's requirements, but the psychiatrist she found in Bridgeport was unhelpful and just wanted to stick needles in David. She contended that the church should have set up their own testing. But while the Glatzels and church argued back and forth, Ed and Lorraine Warren believed time was running out. They were scared someone was going to get hurt. So in late 1980, Lorraine called the Brookfield police. She reported that there was a danger in the Glatzel house and someone might end up dead. Coming up, the beast finds a new vessel for its rage. Now back to the story. As terrifying as David's possession was, the Warrens knew from past experience that things could get far worse. To prevent any escalation, they warned the Glatzel family not to anger the demon and to limit contact with David. Most of them listened, but not all of the family heeded their advice. After David's possession, Debbie Glatzel and her fiancé, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, or Cheyenne, moved into the Glatzel home. But no matter how much the Warrens urged them to stay away from David and the beast inside him, Cheyenne didn't listen, and they all paid the price. Jordan stood in the snow as he jimmied the window from the outside. His fiancé's family didn't know he was here, and he wanted to keep it that way. He had done this before, but this time, it wasn't Monica's bedroom he was sneaking into. It was her brother Billy's. The kid was possessed, and he was ruining everything. Jordan and Monica had been on the cusp of a life together. They'd gotten jobs and found the perfect little house. But Monica had refused to move in claiming that's where Billy caught whatever evil afflicted him. Jordan hadn't believed in all that possession garbage, but the stuff he'd seen was wild. Billy had spoken in odd languages and tried to attack Monica's grandmother. Jordan even saw Billy move things without touching them. A priest had come to investigate, but it hadn't helped. Nothing did. And now... Jordan's life consisted of strapping Billy to his bed during his episodes and calling around Connecticut to find demon hunters. It wasn't what he signed up for, and it really was starting to tick him off. Jordan had always had a hard time controlling his anger, and these past few months had really tested his rage. He needed to fix this before he snapped. When Jordan finally got the window open, he boosted himself through the opening, trying to be as quiet as possible. In the process, his gold cross necklace clanked against the windowsill. Jordan winced, assuming Billy would wake up. But thankfully, he remained sound asleep in his bed across the room. After a moment, Jordan closed the window behind him and tiptoed across the room to Billy's bed. He stood over the boy, holding the cross. He'd been researching exorcisms at the library and knew what to do. 
He wasn't scared of some demon. It might be able to control a 12-year-old, but Jordan was an all-state wrestling champion. This thing didn't stand a chance. Jordan lowered the cross to Billy's forehead and whispered that he was going to help Billy get rid of the beast. But when he looked at the kid's face, he saw that Billy's eyes were now open, and they weren't their usual hazel color. They were pure black. Jordan froze as Billy's mouth split into a smug, chilling smile. The boy asked if Jordan needed help with the beast inside him. Jordan gasped. He felt a kernel of rage swell up within him. He thought of Monica, of their house. The anger was so immense it scared him. It swelled in his chest like a balloon, forcing out a guttural scream. Billy howled and lunged at Jordan, wrapping his cold hands around his throat. Jordan struggled, but Billy's inhuman strength was too great, even for Connecticut's all-state wrestling champ. Jordan's vision grew dim, and then blackness prevailed. Jordan opened his eyes and was once again met with those black eyes. But when he blinked, he realized they didn't belong to Billy. He was looking at a cute Labrador mix who was staring back at him from a kennel. Jordan backed away and looked around. He suddenly recognized that he was at the dog groomer and kennel where his fiancée Monica worked. But he had no idea how he'd gotten here. Daylight streamed into the room which Jordan found odd. It had just been nighttime. He touched his throat, remembering Billy's cold hands latched around it and the anger that it had ignited. But he couldn't remember what had happened next. He started to panic. He snapped out of it when he heard Monica laugh across the room. She was bathing a golden doodle at one of the grooming stations, and Jordan noticed that she was joking around with her boss, Hank something. Neither of them seemed to have noticed Jordan, even though he was only about 30 feet away. They seemed to be in their own little world. Hank leaned toward Monica to brush suds from her shoulder. She giggled in that cute way she always did when she flirted. Except this time, she wasn't flirting with Jordan. She was flirting with Hank. Jordan felt anger surge through him again. He just risked his life to get their lives back on track. And here she was, batting her eyelashes at some other guy. The fury grew stronger with each moment he watched them. It rippled through his chest, making it so tight it felt like his muscles were pulled taut. Just as he was about to scream, Monica turned to him. She smiled and waved innocently, but Jordan swore she looked caught. Still, Monica gestured Jordan over, Jordan approached slowly, his eyes on the scissors she was using to snip the dog's fur as she spoke to him. But he could barely hear what she was saying. His gaze shifted to Hank, whose double chin quivered into a smile. Jordan sneered at him. He knew what Hank was doing. He was trying to be friendly to cover up that he'd just been hitting on Monica. Jordan wanted to wipe that stupid smile off Hank's face. As he crossed the room, rage seemed to boil out of control inside him. Hank wasn't helping Monica's family. Jordan was. Jordan felt his lip curl. Monica put a hand on his arm and asked why he was breathing so heavily. She looked worried. Hank said he thought Jordan looked tired. Then he referred to Jordan as a kid. 
and that was more than Jordan could bear. Jordan lunged for the scissors in Monica's hand. He wrestled them away from her and then thrust them into Hank's belly. Hank was too surprised to do anything. He just stared at Jordan in confusion. But Jordan wasn't done. He snarled like a rabid dog and stabbed Hank in the chest over and over. Blood splashed everywhere and leaked onto the floor. Monica unleashed a horrific scream that sent all of the other employees and customers running for the exits. Monica asked if the beast was in him now, too. But he couldn't answer her. He was transfixed by the golden doodle that was now speckled with shiny dots of crimson. Jordan stared into the dog's eyes. In the shiny surface of the irises, he could see his reflection. But it wasn't how he normally looked. Instead of ears, Jordan seemed to have spiked horns, and his eyes were black holes. Monica's question reverberated in his head. Was the beast inside him now? Jordan managed to whisper, yes, the beast was inside him. And if someone didn't stop him, he'd kill more. On February 16, 1981, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, Debbie Glatzel's fiance, killed a man at the Brookfield Dog Kennels. The victim, Alan Bono, was Debbie's employer and the couple's landlord. Debbie and Cheyenne had moved into an apartment above the kennels after moving out of Debbie's parents' house. Eyewitnesses reported that the men got into a violent argument before Cheyenne stabbed Alan. Another witness recounted that Alan growled like an animal during the attack. Incredibly, it was the first murder in Brookfield, Connecticut in the town's 193-year history. But that wasn't the only historical part of the trial. Cheyenne's legal defense was equally groundbreaking, because they attempted to argue that demons made him do it. The young man's lawyer leaned into the demonic possession angle and leveraged the expertise of Ed and Lorraine Warren. The famous couple told the media that they had warned the local police, so if the death was anyone's fault, it was law enforcement's. Lorraine also explained to the press that Cheyenne tried to rescue David from possession and invited the beast to take him instead. The whole case became a sensation. At the time, the country was in the throes of satanic panic, a period of mass hysteria in the 80s and 90s when many believed evil lurked in pop music, movies, and other aspects of everyday life. Luckily, the judge presiding over the case refused to hear any testimony related to demonic possession, calling it irrelative and unscientific. The jury was legally barred from considering possession as a viable explanation for the murder, so the defense simply implied self-defense. Cheyenne Johnson was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison for first-degree manslaughter. He was released after just five years. According to Newsweek, in 2007, Debbie's now-adult sons sued Lorraine Warren, claiming that the entire possession was, quote, a hoax invented by the Warrens to exploit David's mental illness. Debbie and Cheyenne maintained that demonic possession caused Bono's death. In the hysteria surrounding the trial, however, people seemed to have lost track of the true origin of the Brookfield demon, the quaint yellow house with the green shutters. Over the years, it's been speculated that it was repainted, perhaps remodeled. Maybe the stone well was covered over or overgrown with grass and vines. 
but the house is likely still there, sitting in a grove of trees just off Old Hollyville Road. Its yellow clapboard walls and olive green shutters open and welcoming, waiting for its next victim. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with our final episode of our four-part series on Behind the Conjuring, when we visit one of the most famous haunted houses in history, the Amityville Horror House. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Alex Garland. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>